Yes, Lord, you know what the fuck is going on, man. Hella Black back in this thing like we ain't never left, you feel me? On episode 64 of Hella Black, we talk about abolishing the prison industrial complex with none other than Mariam Kaba, also known as Prison Culture Online. You feel me? This is a great episode where we talk about organizing, we talk about transformative justice, we talk about reformative justice, you feel me? And we talk about getting rid of this fucking prison system, you feel me? The whole prison industrial complex. Make sure you tap in. Like us on SoundCloud. Fuck with us on Apple Podcasts. Make sure you give us a five-star review. Subscribe to it, you feel me? Fuck with us on Spotify. Follow us, you feel me? Tell a friend. Tell your auntie. Tell a cousin. And make sure you tap in with our Patreon. Patreon.com slash hellblackpie for extended content and a bunch more, you feel me? And if you're white, don't listen to this shit for free. We've said it way too many fucking times for us to keep saying it over and over again. Pay the fuck up. Let's get it. West Coast Pops, Coast Pops. Poppin' like your mom's chicken grease You can act like you don't hear me till your skin catch the heat Battle scars look different in these streets There's a difference between being defeated and being beat Ooh, mouthpiece, ask me where I get it from Real G's, eating fake spitters up Big breeze, past the water If it make it out to 40, then the kid is globe trotter, huh? Face any bull in the ring Hella Black Podcast, me in your ear Again, black at it again Like we never left, you feel me? We coming into 2020 strong with that politic, man Yeah You feel me? We've been being very consistent, organized. Niggas waking up in the morning and shit. Niggas it's a whole not getting new approach drunk every episode and shit. Like it's, it's a whole new approach. To this. I think <laughs> you can see the growth in us as people and as podcasters. Yeah, and you can just see it. Yeah, I'm finna have a podcaster in my bio now. I think it, I think it's about time. We might have earned that right. <laughs> we real podcasters now, man. So appreciate everybody for showing us love. We are a reflection of y'all. We yeah. all support. We feel the need to grow, be better, do our best, invest more time. Be more, more accountable. The pod. <laughs> yeah, you know, our patrons are growing. So it's like, all right, you know, we got more people to be held accountable yeah, to. Yeah, shout out to all the Tyrons, you know, in this thing. Episode 63, 64? 64, 63 was with no name. Okay, yeah. And if you haven't heard that one, you should listen. And if you haven't heard 62, you should listen to that one. 61, you should listen to that one. And all we the episodes got, before yeah, you. We got a lot of fire content. I was like, damn, I was looking through our show. I'm like, we really got a whole catalog of shit. Bro. It's like, we got a digital syllabus, man. So the stars pull, have pull just... up in the classroom, wherever your classroom is, if it's in your car, <laughs> if it's at the coffee shop, if it's at the gym, man, plug in with Hella Black. Hey, the stars have just been aligning with, you know, the last few episodes we've been able to put out, especially when it comes to, to guests. And now I just feel like, this is how I can uh, how I can describe it. You know, like with Thanos, as he was just going through the different <laughs> galaxies, acquiring the gemstone, the yeah. um, Infinity Stones. This is what's with happening. This last right now, guest, we just, we just got that last one, bro. bro we <laughs> we just with this guest we got today, we just got the last Infinity Stone. I'm so fucking happy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, so, I'm so happy. So hopefully we could abolish prisons, abolish police, abolish white with supremacy. A snap of, with the snap, a snap of, of the finger, finger after this episode is done. So if you can't tell already. This episode is going to be about abolition. Uh-huh. We have a very special guest with us today. Miriam, how you doing? I am doing well. How are you? Doing great. We're doing great, you know. Just trying I'm to, excited. Trying to wake up fully, you know, it's, it's 9 a.m. over here. But. Yes. <laughs> you've I at, know. You've been at no. it for a while. What time <laughs> is left, it over here? <laughs> the left coast has a whole different uh, vibe to it beyond us on the east coast it's like a, a different world when i was um 
much younger and I was looking at places to go to college. I went and visited on the left coast. I went, um, I had applied to Berkeley and I went over there. I lasted exactly a day and a half. And I was like, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) For real? Why? You wasn't fucking with it? (laughs) The vibe was so different. I grew up in New York City. So I was like, what kind of place is this? No. What do you mean vibe? Vibe can be used to say a lot of things. All these hipsters, huh? No, give it to us. Give it to us. What does vibe mean? Yeah, there were a lot of white people, and it was really like a particular type of white person, you know, like very, um, I don't want to stereotype, but it did feel like a hippie, hipsterish kind of place. And I was like, this isn't going to work for me. I'm not going to fit in here. Yeah, Kwame Ture called it the white intellectual ghetto of the West. <laughs> ah, my goodness. Well, now that you've already <laughs> cited Kwame Ture, who, by the way, was my um, family's neighbor for the last part of his life in Guinea, in Conakry. So, yeah. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, we're, we're, um, we're super excited to have you on. It's been a long time coming. I think we've been talking about this for at least the better part of a year for uh-huh. me to getting you on here. I know um, both Blake and myself have learned a lot from you and I'm hoping that, you know, our listeners today can, can do the same. Sure. It's my pleasure. So for those that aren't um, familiar with Miriam, I feel like I'm going to take a shot at um, just, you know, describing you and all your work. And then if I miss anything or yeah, fuck up on anything, you feel free to correct that. and add sure. on to it. Um, So you're a writer, an organizer, the founder of Project Nia, um, which, is an, which is an org that works to end the incarceration of children and youth through restorative justice. Um, the co-founder of the Chicago Task Force. Um, are you the co-founder of Survive Punish as well? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, which works to end the um, criminalization of sex, sexual and domestic violence survivors. Yes. Boom, and then Chicago Freedom School. So yeah, yeah. You, you got a lot under your um, under your belt. You do a, a lot of amazing work. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yes, I've been um, lucky to be part of so many different formations in my lifetime, and um, have been really blessed to also be part of um, founding and co-creating lots of different kinds of spaces. I. Um, started my first organization when I was 15, so it's mm-hmm. been a minute. Damn. <laughs> That's what's up. You, you a real vet. Yeah. You that Black Power veteran, huh? the word veteran i'm always a little bit like what does that really mean am i just old or what's the situation here but yeah i I was not trying to call you old i was it's okay i am i am okay (laughs) before we dive into the episode you know we like to start um each episode with black joy which is a chance for um Blake and myself and also whoever the guest is to shed some light on, you know, some things that brought some joy into their very black lives. Um, you want to kick it off, B? Do you want to kick it off? We'll, we'll let Miriam <laughs> kick it off since you're the guest. You, you can oh, man. Yeah. You're putting me on the spot first. Yeah. Um, <laughs> hey, what has been really joyful for me? Is it just today or in this week or what's the time frame? 
could be the past month. It could be the past week. It could be today. We haven't talked. This is our first time meeting, so shit, it could be three years from three years ago. And I will. It could be three years ago. Oh my new to me. It's gonna be new to me. Yes, it could be anything. Well, I'll uh, limit myself to this week. Um, I one of the things I do is collect. I'm a collector of different kinds of things, and um, one I just have been looking for this very small publication for a while now and it came available about two weeks ago and I got it which I'm thrilled about and so um, I'm feeling a lot of like black joy to get my hands on this document which was a kind of a little publication um, that was by James Foreman people know him from in uh, kind of his work that he did in SNCC and in other uh, formations uh, in the 1950s, 60s uh, and beyond. Anyway, it was a, it's a document called Political Lesson One. Um, and it was like his little pamphlet or zine that was made that were, was helping organizers do one-on-ones basically um, with people in their communities. Um, and it was published by something called the Black Workers Congress. Um, and I'd been looking for it for a while. So it came available and I got it and I was thrilled. So that's a little bit of a kind of nerdy version of Black Joy. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's up. What about you? Yeah, I go. Shit, I'll be deflecting sometimes. I'm like, fuck, I got to think about my way. <laughs> what brought me joy? <laughs> I need to stop. I need to have a better mindset with it. Yeah, it's just a chance for us to, like, you know, build a safe space and community with each other before we dive into all this negative yeah. shit. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Shit. I got a book chapter coming out, and it's officially coming out in July. Congrats so on that. I'm very excited about that. Yeah, it's going to be like a... Uh, like an, it's about the Black Panther Party, so I'm juiced to be part of that book. And um, you know, my family, Jaleel Montakim, who's locked up actually in New York currently, he he has a chapter in that book. So to be a published, to be published alongside <laughs> him is is super exciting. Hey, that's dope, bro. That's yeah. amazing. You should so, be proud of that. And yeah, yeah. and we're uplifting, you know, the work of People's Breakfast Oakland in that chapter. So I'm I'm excited for that to just to get a bigger platform. Too, so. Wonderful. Yeah. What about you, D? I can't remember if I talked about the day that I spent with my grandma on the last episode. Did I? You can't remember. I can barely remember what happened yesterday. <laughs> well, I'm just gonna run that back because that's what I've been thinking. Yeah. Huh? I think you talked about. It. I can't remember. We I was gonna to... say paintball, and I was like, "Did I say that last time?" I can't even. Right. Well, I don't care because this shit is stuck on my brain. So if you heard it last week, you're gonna hear it again. Um, a couple weeks ago, I got to spend. I went to brunch with my grandma. And yeah, we just, we walked through her neighborhood, which has like changed so much um, since I was a kid, right? Like a result of gentrification. And then, you know, like my family sold a bunch of my, my grandparents, my great grandparents property, um, which has made it hard for me to go over there. Cause I'd be having like hella memories and I'd be getting hella angry. Cause you know, just the work that niggas do and see my family kind of contribute to the gentrification of the neighborhood of the city or whatever. But we walked to Creekwood. I took her to Creekwood. She hadn't been there yet. And she lived, right around the corner. She don't fucking get out the house much. Yeah. But we went to Creekwood. We had a great uh, a great breakfast. We talked. And then I walked her down to, to the gym and got her a membership. That's what's up. Um, and then, yeah. That was just, just spending a couple hours with my grandma on a Saturday morning, um, which is, like, different from the way I spend my life. You know, it's always, like, hella hustle and bustle and just getting up and getting straight to it. So it allowed me to, like, slow down. And then, I don't know, you just spend, as you know, like, spending time with your others is always just an opportunity to, like, just shift your 
perspective. Perspective. Yeah. And you know, like my granny, about to be 70 years old, she done lived a lot of life. And it just recentered me and like what's important. Yeah. Like when I, I think when we spend around spend time around a lot of our peers, you know, we so caught up in chasing shit and trying yeah. to get after this, it. like, yo, like I did that. And I'm telling you, when it's all said and done, these are the things that matter. These are the things that matter. So yeah, just spending that time with my grandma and being able to just I feel like get that perspective, that much needed perspective, um, was something that brought me a lot of joy. That's what's up. Yeah. I appreciate y'all both for sharing with me. Thank you for asking. Yeah, it's good to send a joy. I feel like even yeah. even when it's hard and you gotta think for a second, I'm like, what what's going on in my life? But there's a lot. There's a lot of shit that I have to be. If a nigga asks you what you bad about right now, you're going to be able to just yeah, I'm like, man. that shit out. <laughs> so it's important that we learn, like, oh, no. yeah. yeah. I know. I agree. I think one of the lessons I've always, I learned years ago when I was just starting out in organizing um, was the importance of celebrating the choir. Um, oftentimes people really spend a lot of time kind of um, chasing after things instead of thinking about the people who are already in the room um, or alongside you, your comrades in struggle. Um, so important to be celebrating each other on a regular basis. This work is long and hard. We absolutely need the, you know, moments of those kind of joy, embracing that and embracing each other. So that's a great way to start. Most death, for sure. So let's just dive right into it. So we know you grew up in New York, um, so we're wondering how the racism you experienced there helped shape like your outlook on white supremacy. It's a very, that's a hard question, I think, for me, mainly because um, because I grew up in a home um, with people who were very much um, already political and politicized. I grew up really taking for granted um, really for a long time, my blackness, and I mean that in the best possible sense, I, I, I just always grew up understanding that we as black people were incredibly, um, we were expansive, you know, as black folks. Like, I grew up seeing black people in going and visiting my family in West Africa, seeing that black people ran shit and did great jobs and terrible jobs. I um, knew black folks who were brilliant and I knew black folks who were profoundly ordinary. I knew like, so I grew up in the sense of just embracing the vast expanse of blackness and like understanding that blackness contained kind of multitudes. When I was um, confronted with people who clearly thought blackness was inferior and it was so confusing to me as a kid. Like, so I had a very different um, orientation, I think, than other people who grew up seeing themselves in some way being defined always as lesser than. And so I had to make, I had to realize that like, this was not just an interpersonal thing, like people treating you badly as, cause they're just assholes, but it was actually a systemic thing that um, blanketed you know, all of us, that we were all seen in this kind of way that was uh, a degraded way. Um, it was very hard to make, at least for me, it was, it, the initial thing was just a shock when I was, treat, when I, when people would come at me with racism, I was like, really, why? I'm so great. 
Like, I just did not, like, it didn't compute initially. It wasn't until later when I gained an analysis of, like, white supremacy that I understood it much better. Um, so I don't know if that answers your question, but it was really, I think it was jarring for me just because it didn't compute to me at all. Yeah, I, I can definitely relate to that. Like, I, I think I was always aware of my blackness and aware of racism, but it took, again, for me to, like, have a have a better understanding a deeper analysis for me to realize that this shit has always like been around me like now the way that i feel about it now is not the way that i felt about it as a teenager and i will say i grew up in like my mom was studying african-american history at san francisco state yeah. when i was yeah. 16 years old for me, my, my uncle and grandparents we were the panthers you feel me it was like <laughs> yeah. i was i was i was the vice president of the black student union at berkeley high when i was a senior in high school but yeah. i still didn't like i didn't feel the way that I feel now as opposed yeah. to like white supremacy and my blackness definitely as a result of like me not having this deeper understanding and the analysis yeah. that came with it. Yeah. I, I really relate to that same kind of upbringing and same kind of just like, what the hell are you even talking about? It doesn't make sense to me at all. Um, but yeah. I often feel like kind of lucky though. Cause I couldn't, I couldn't imagine being as angry as I am. Like I, I think about the teenagers that I work with now, like they have a way deeper understanding of white supremacy and yeah. blackness yes. at this young age than I did. And like yeah, they angry as fuck, you feel me? Like, <laughs> bro, they not taking, and like, you know, at that age, you just you quick ready, to let you, it go. Quick to go. They not letting you nothing that, slide, bro. That like, revolutionary rage, y'all got. Nothing slide. What'd you say? <laughs> yes, so right. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Just the, the life circumstances that they've had to uh, deal with and, and try to overcome have given them um, a radical perspective and also an understanding much earlier than I did. I came to my understanding like when I was a teenager, you know, um, but as a kid, I was just not at all tuned in. Which, which is like dangerous, but also I think ignorance is a little bliss. And sometimes I'd be wishing yeah. like, the kids can just fucking exist have that joy and not be have out that fight. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. yeah. Thank you. And especially if you have a protective community around you, which was my case, you know, you have a bunch of adults who insist, like I only had black dolls. I only had like, I, you know, this is, I mean, I was born in 1971. So, you know, that's early to the kind of, it wasn't like, uh, there was like one in um, one black doll that was commercially uh, being um, kind of put out there in the world and it was called Rub-A-Dub Rub Dolly. And it was like the only black doll that was out there and my parents got it for me, you know? So it was just, uh, yeah, it was uh, being surrounded by people who were like, nah, you're gonna know yourself in your fullness. Um, we are gonna insist on that. Yeah. And just even like having that memory still like that's that's a powerful thing yes. like, to, ha to have that still right and yep. so um so yeah i mean we'll talk about your work to combat the criminal justice system um later on in the episode but like leading up to this work what was the pivotal moment in your life that made you aware of the criminal uh, punishment system mm -hmm. and, what, and what made you first come yeah first come to this awareness yes um so you mentioned, I, I, you know, I did grow up in the city and I grew up here um, in the 70s and 80s. Um, and New York was a very different place in that period of time. I always call it like it was pre-New York as Disneyland. And um, the, it, we, the a concept of like people getting ensnared in the criminal punishment system was completely... Um, how would you even call it? it was just part of the air 
And it was just part of the climate, um, especially if you're a young Black person, young Latinos. I grew up on the Lower East Side. A lot of my friends and myself, like we were, you know, the cops targeted people regularly. Um, Tompkins Square Park wasn't far from where I grew up and people were squatting over there. This is at a time when um, HIV AIDS is coming into um, kind of consciousness of people. Um, this is the beginning of kind of be New York becoming a place where you could see actual homelessness in a very specific way. Deinstitutionalization had happened. And who was the, now, who was the mayor at this time? Um, the mayor, when I was growing up, my like memory of the mayor was mayor. My first memory of a mayor was Mayor Ed Koch, um, who was uh, tough on crime, uh, kind of old school Paul person. Um, so th this is like a this is like a different time in the city. Um, mm -hmm. It's a time when the city is in the seventies almost bankrupted, and then also quote unquote crime rising you know, all this stuff going on at the same time. So I say that to say that the environment was definitely a fraught environment, but it just felt normal to those of us who were growing up in the city. But my friends, a lot, I mean, I would go and visit my friends who'd gotten arrested on Rikers Island. I would, you know, and I just didn't have, but I have, I keep telling people this and it's hard to put into, like, it, did, it just felt like that was the norm. Mm -hmm. That was just what happened. And you just dealt with that on a regular basis. And I went to school though, at a private school on the um, Upper East Side of New York. And my friends who were doing the exact same kinds of behaviors in that school as my friends who were near when I was at home were not experiencing that exact same kind of criminalization and that exact same kind of experience of having been locked up and targeted. Um, and so, but even with knowing those things and seeing like the differences in terms of people's race and in terms of people's um, income and class and all this other kind of stuff and how the treatment was different, I still didn't come to consciousness. It was after um, a person, a young person named Michael Stewart was killed in 1983 in New York. He was um, tagging um, trains and making murals. And this is at the time when, you know, kind of graffiti was big in the city. Um, and uh, the cops basically killed him. And it was a moment that was, re I remember it clearly in the sense that um, everybody was talking about it. Like all my friends were talking about it, not my friends at school, my friends at home. And it was like, this is bullshit. And, you know, the cops are pigs and like all this stuff. And and I was like, oh my God, this is my kind of first understandings of like, this is state violence. Um, this is brutality from the cops. This is not just our normal experience that we're supposed to just expect that we're just gonna get harassed. Like, I was like, oh wow, people are making it clear to me that this is not normal, like this is just wrong. And that was the beginning of my, like changing my mind and starting to read different books and becoming like much more um, rigorous in understanding systems and um, that it wasn't just individual people. So I was about, um, I don't know, maybe 12 at that stage. And that kind of began to put me on a different path around that um, 
around kind of understanding state, understanding violence, understanding criminalization. It frankly though, wasn't until I was grad, I had graduated from college and I was teaching at a school in Harlem that I saw my students get harassed, harmed in very specific ways that I took the beginnings of the inklings that I understood and knew about racism and, and doing anti-racism work as a teenager and I connected it to like my study and then I connected it to this criminalization that's happening is something that we have to like take action to actually stop. Um, so that so that's a little bit of the trajectory. It was muddled. It was not a linear process. It was like, you know, learning, stopping, questioning, not knowing what to do about it. It was like all the stuff that happened that brought me finally to a point of like, I have to actually intervene here. Yeah, it's like, racism is like exists on like a scatter plot. It's everywhere, <laughs> you know, and I know for myself, it's like, I feel like my initial understanding of racism was like police brutality being yeah. called the n-word yeah but then it's like being in education and learning more about education spaces like oh this is racism too and then making those correlations between education and and racism right and education and police brutality and police violence and you know the school to prison pipeline or the in a lot of ways public schools work like prisons too mm -hmm. you know? So it makes sense that you wouldn't know that, right? Like it makes sense. Like there are think about in our culture, in our societies, where are the places that you would get that knowledge? You know, if you're a kid, like where would you begin to be able to tie the knots? If you don't have a teacher or someone in your life to be a guide for you, it's right. very difficult to like tease out all of the things it's difficult for adults to you know people i've been working with adults for years right like it's difficult for adults to understand all this stuff and to be able to be like i should question this like this is then actually the way that things are supposed to be to come to consciousness is something that is actually a process over time and oftentimes we do need guides in that process you don't it doesn't just happen through osmosis and I'm, I'm thinking even if you are lucky enough as a kid to have someone in your home like you were telling you like yes. trying to educate you on, on the on the state or whatever you get to school and get taught the complete opposite thing like exactly. it's a whole a whole side of propaganda like yeah. you go into the world get taught something, something totally different shit, like indoctrinating you in a yep. lot of ways and yep. also probably trying to change the opinions that you might have had from growing up at in your you know in a radical house yeah absolutely and the media and all this stuff and your peers and everybody it all influences you you know um either for the good or towards the bad there, there was a point that you made um during your explanation where you talked about how you know the kid the, the black kids in your neighborhood would get punished for things that the white kids in that live near your private school um yeah. wouldn't and yeah. I, like I, one thing i really want our listeners to understand is like um usually folks aren't aware of the of the united states criminal pu punishment system being like a direct reflection of anti-blackness mm -hmm. yeah can you, dive, can you dive into that a little more because I, I feel like it's people think that they can be separate when it's like nah it's, it's one and the same like this is a system rooted in anti-blackness it is it's a system rooted in anti-blackness it's also a system rooted in settler colonialism it's, you know, I, I always like to make sure people understand a few things when we talk about the prison industrial complex, which is um, when you think of what is the prison industrial complex, it's, you know, kind of the mix of all the interests 
um, that uphold prisons, policing, and surveillance, um, kind of making themselves known to people and making themselves felt to people. And I, 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 I think it's like the, it's much more complicated to explain to folks, but I think it's important to understand. I've been hearing over the past few years, people say, well, you know, policing in the US grew out of um, slave patrols, right? And they'll say, you know, that, that you can make a one-to-one -one link between the policing that we experience today and slave patrols. And I'm like, yeah, that's true, right? In one angle, it's absolutely true that slave patrols in the South conditioned the rise of the modern police force in the South. But this is a vast country. And in the West, Indian constables, right, were the root of policing in the West. And in the Northeast, the roots of policing can be found in union busting and the unions and the corporations having their own private forces that they used against their workers. And in those cases, the workers were mostly woo, immigrant workers from overseas, the Italians, the Irish, the whatever. So like, if we're talking about the United States of America, then the roots of these systems that we come to understand have many tentacles. Mm -hmm. And one of them is deep, deep anti-Blackness true we gotta know that and also deep deep pro-genocidal you know in like in, uh, instincts and desire you know and deep deep originally anti-immigrant xenophobic kinds of instincts and desire so like these things aren't separate from each other in fact in many cases some things predate other things, or in other cases, they work simultaneously together. This is why policing is so basically fucked at its root, because it has all these deeply oppressive roots from which it grew. And if you don't understand all those roots, you can't, you look at the current system and you're like, I don't understand. How is it that Native Americans currently in this country are the people most likely actually by rate to be killed by police? Right? Like, do people know that? No, of course they don't. Yet, that's the reality, right? Um, mm. You know, you can't think about policing and violence without thinking about deep ableism, right? Because mm. the people who are most likely to be killed by cops are people who are actually disabled folks. Like, and if you don't actually know that, and if you can't make it, then how are we going to actually uh, target this issue? How are we going to get at the root? How are we going to uproot the oppression in order to be able to transform, you know, the, our society into something that's totally different. And that's what abolition calls us to do. Uh, you know, it's a vision of a restructured society and world. So I just like to put that out there because I do think that we need to have much more sophisticated understandings of these institutions and systems if we're actually going to dismantle them and create a different world. Yeah, it's, it's just wild how complex white supremacy and oppression is like it isn't simple as like a lot of times people just try to describe oh it's just anti-blackness it's like yes it is anti-blackness that is correct but it is also multiple systems of oppression exactly. working together at the same time so we can't just say it's anti-blackness yep. a black person got killed but it's also anti-blackness it's also ableism. yes also like and ableism is deeply connected to anti-blackness Right. Like, and so, you know, people, 
people have to be able to do multiple things at once, which I think is very hard for us, you know, is to think multiple thoughts at the same time in order to be able to do that. But if we can't do that, then we don't know what we're up against. We can't face it. We're not going to, and we're like, oh, we just did this, but now it's growing in this way and transforming and changing. Why is that? Well, it's because we didn't address the full roots, yeah. you know? You yeah. attack it one side when it's a multifaceted thing. Exactly. Yeah. And I like your I like your analogy of like the tentacles. Like you cut yes. off one te- tentacle, you feel me? Octopus is gonna grow another, and that's that's kind of the way white supremacy Not only is it works. gonna grow another. It's still got those other ones that you that you didn't hit. Exactly. exactly. Like. <laughs> and it's repairing the one that you cut off yeah. while those other ones still exist. So then you're we're all like, oh, we're failing. I'm like, oh my god, you're just again, you're just a lack of imagination. <laughs> Yeah. So earlier you was talking about, you know, your family and how, you know, growing up in your household, there was a lot of like political and organizing work. So if we could just dive into that a little bit. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about your father's organizing work in the Ivory Coast and Guinea and then later in the U.S. and then along with your mother's community oriented lifestyle, how it helped prepare, and you know, and shape you for a life rooted in the liberation of not just black and African people across the diaspora, but people that are oppressed by this white supremacist nation worldwide. Thank you for asking that. And thank you for knowing that about my family. Um, I don't know, maybe, I, did you, anyway, I was just like, that's, you read something enough to know that. Thank you. Hey, we try um, to, you know, we try to research, you feel me? <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. My father uh, was very active in anti-colonial struggle um, in his uh, native uh, country of Guinea. Um, he was very close friends with Sekou Touré, who became the first president of the country. Um, a Marxist, uh, anti-capitalist, um, kind of pan-Africanist. Um, and uh, I'm going to just, I'm not going to give people all the, you know, rigmarole, it's a long story, but um, my father was sent to the U.S. to study. He became part of the kind of first cadre of African students who came to this U.S. in the 50s to try to um, study here and then take the ideas back to their home countries in order to be able to build up their home countries. Um, and, um, while my father was studying in the U.S., he started getting wind through, uh, comrades and, and other strugglers, um, that Sigu was basically, um, killing his dissenters, um, and also imprisoning them, and one of those people was my uncle, and, um, my father, uh, had a huge moment of disillusionment around, the concept of revolution and what all that would really mean in real life, like the fact that the day after uh, is as important as the revolution itself. You know, he taught me a lot. Um, And uh, he ended up having to be in exile, couldn't go back to the country under penalty of being imprisoned. Um, And so he was forced to uh, take a job. He ended up taking a job with the UN, which saved his life and is why I'm I'm here in existence. Um, And uh, yeah, and he just always uh, was really connected to politics and trying to think about Africa and trying to think about um, his original um, kind of, you know, his original hopes for the country, um, which was a socialist uh, country where folks would get what they needed, have their needs met, um, where folks would uh, kind of, you know, the idea of abolishing wage work so that folks could do all the types of work that they would want to be doing and be able to survive. Um, so yes, yeah, so I learned a lot from him in that way. And my mother, um, while not 
overtly political in the same way was very much still political in terms of her deep, deep connection to religion or Muslim, um, her understanding of community and the importance of us being interdependent with each other. I saw her model that in the way that she took care of people, the way she took in my friends and other folks and allowed people to stay with us and eat. And, you know, so I got kind of a real deep uh, education in structure and analysis around politics and the policy, the polity as a whole. But I also got mutual aid understanding that you, you don't just think quote unquote big abstract thoughts, but like it has to have meaning in people's individual lives. And you have to also be able to make sure people have enough to survive and to live and that you have to be part of helping that survival happen. And I got both of those things from my parents, from both of them. Yeah, one thing I um admire about folks like like your mom is that um they're really just guided by an overall sense of love for the people. You know, I think in a time yeah. where all of us are just caught up in like titles and ranks and all that, it's like nah. At the end of the day, what what really matters is being a resource and uplifting your folks. And exactly. that's something that like I, I see in my community all the time. And I think you know a lot of folks wouldn't identify themselves as a resource for the community or as an organizer or as an activist or as a leader. And it's like, nah, by your very existence of extending a helping hand to your people, you're doing the necessary work. Exactly right. I couldn't have uh, said it better. You 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 took it out of my mouth. Yes, absolutely. I I think about that all the time, which is why I always try to uplift both my parents because they both had such influence on me. My father, who's no longer here on this uh, kind of realm, and my mother, who's still you know still teaching me today every single day by her actions and the way that she moves in the world and the way she cares for and about people. Uh, deeply like in a in a way that's not like some sort of like fake thing but that is just rooted in this kind of you know we owe each other each other's best you know and in a lot of ways abolition is rooted in love right and it's not just about abolishing these structures but it's also I feel like our personal relationships and how do we show love how do we show up for people how do we show care for people because if we're talking about dismantling the systems like what is next, right? How do we treat each other? You feel me? And I think that's not an important part of abolition. <laughs> Hugely critical part of abolition. I always tell people, and you know, especially younger people um, who I've been lucky to work alongside all these years, that it's so important to think about abolition as a project of creation and building. It's a world-making project. It's not, you know, it is a dismantling of the current structures, but it's always been a world-making one. In order for you to, you know, there's some basic tenets of PIC abolition, and people, if you're going to call yourself an abolitionist, you kind of have to subscribe to those some of those basic tenets. And one of them is that what we're trying to do is to divest from death-making institutions and invest in the institutions that would lead to stronger and safer communities, institutions that don't produce more harm. Um, and that's what's going to create the conditions necessary for a world without those death-making institutions. So you can't, you have to constantly be thinking about how to be creative um, within an abolitionist framework and an ideology. Um, and uh, yeah, so I, I really do kind of constantly remind people about that that yes abolish is a key part of what we're talking about but it's abolished towards what towards what end it's to abolish towards a vision of a restructured society and world 
So, so yeah, while we're on that, how would you define abolition? Because I think for most po- most folks, they hear that word and they think just prisons. Yeah. So what you're saying is it's much more than that. It's so much more than that. And I just would say, um, I, I now have learned over the years to begin a conversation with people when they ask me a question like that by asking them a question. That's unfortunately my teacher side that will always be the core thing and so I always ask people whoever I'm talking to when they ask me what is abolition and they usually are asking either in a deeply curious way or in a confrontational way um I want I wonder what you all would say the purpose of jails and prisons are what 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 do you think the purpose is the purpose of jails prisons policing surveillance what are what's the purpose of it for me I would say to imprison black folks uh to continue to get free labor um yeah to to enact state state sanctioned violence Mm -hmm. produce capital produce power for the military Mm -hmm. i think growing up you're taught that the police are good right Mm -hmm. if you do a bad thing and you do a quote-unquote criminal act or you, you know you shoplift or something then you were sent to jail, you were sent to prison. Yeah. Supposed to quote unquote make communities safer. So I feel like growing up there's that propaganda that mm-hmm. we're taught about prisons and, and yeah. the police is like, oh, make your community safe. Yes. When in reality yeah. that isn't what's happened. But now, you know, further politicization you realize, okay, this is very a part of this settler colonial state. Mm-hmm. It's just maintained, you know, slave labor. Yep. So so yes, yeah, so you you all because you've already kind of been on your road towards understanding have a different kind of view of what these actual institutions are. When I ask folks who don't have that backing, the answer is usually like it's to stop crime, you know, or to stop violence. And then they go into it's to rehabilitate people, make them better, right? Um, so I, I'm always like, well, if you're actually if your belief is that jails, prisons, and policing is supposed to stop crime from happening or end violence, then we actually have these empirical evidentiary facts that show that incarcerating people doesn't actually reduce crime or harm, that it doesn't end violence, that prisons are actually violence in and of themselves, Mm -hmm. that they harm people who are sent there. And I then, I'm like, you've seen and heard stories like this daily, right? In your own lives, in the lives of your friends, in your family. So have conversations about that. And then when we talk to the other point that is like, we're supposed to make people better. It's supposed to rehabilitate people. I'm like, that's actually not true either. On the whole, people come home worse off than when they entered, right? right? So on the two things that you say it's supposed to do, it doesn't actually do that. Um, and then we haven't even like brought up the fact that the PIC targets particular populations disproportionately. So it's actually racist and it's classist and it's transphobic, right? It's sexist as an institution. Um, and so our current societies are really, they are violent. There is violence in our society and these institutions exist. And that violence basically doesn't you know, it, it hasn't shifted markedly because of those institutions. So don't you want to think 
about something else? Don't you want to think about a different way of interacting if the things you say you want aren't actually being achieved? So I always like to kind of begin by having people have a conversation with me about like what they want and then to su suggest that what they want, they aren't getting. And then to introduce another layer, which is that the violence we tend to be most concerned about is interpersonal violence, right? Mm -hmm. And that arguably, though, the violence that affects us the most and that has the most impact on us having livable lives is um, the one we pay the least attention to, and that's structural and systemic violence. And that has a lot more nefarious and deep affecting uh, impacts on our lives on a day-to-day -day basis. And prisons and policing and surveillance are all part of that structural and systemic violence. So you can't end violence in this kind of way by using this type of violence to try to end violence. So I say then, you know, that PAC abolitionists, we're concerned with ending all sources of violence and oppression. And PIC, and PIC means prison industrial complex, correct? Yeah, mm -hmm. prison industrial complex abolitionists. I think it's important to keep that at the forefront when we're talking so people understand what we mean. Mm -hmm. And so I'm always like, that means that we're concerned with ending all sources of violence and oppression. And that includes then prisons, policing, and surveillance. Because we know that prisons don't solve violence. Because we know that they're the most concentrated violence that exists. And that they're designed to bring about people's premature death so they have to go. That's the case, right? That's the case to be made about that. And then we move out from there about, I ask, like, I'm telling people that as a PIC abolitionist, you're really concerned with what actual accountability, safety, and justice could look and feel like. That's like where you're coming from. That's your heart. The reason you're a PIC abolitionist is because you want to end all sources of violence right? That's, that's your reason for doing it. And if you want to end all sources of violence, then you definitely want to figure out what's actual accountability looks like, what's actual safety looks like. Because that means you don't want rape in the world. That means you don't want murders. That means you don't want, because those are violences too. So you're deeply concerned with harm. That's like the, that's your, your, that's why you're up in the morning. And that's why you hate prisons and policing and surveillance is because they harm people. So you really want to think about that. And so you always ask, like, how are we going to build a world so that violence in all its forms is addressed and reduced? Um, what else can we imagine and build that is going to make our communities actually safer? And we always talk about, as PAC abolitionists, like, we don't want to conflate incarceration and crime um, and harm. We, we, it's a big mistake to conflate incarceration with crime and harm. Lots of things are criminalized and they are not harmful to anybody. Lots of things are harmful and they are not criminalized. Mm -hmm. That's why we use harm as the unit of our interests, right? Um, yeah, so that's a little bit, like that's how I like to really make sure people understand what abolition is. And as I've said a couple of times already that we think that it's a vision of a restructured world and society. And, you know, Dr. Ruth Wilson Gilmore always says that PIC abolition is about changing one thing, everything. So that's a good way for people to get a sense of a, of a kind of a framework and an ideology and an and a organizing strategy that's broad, um, that's about the entire society. Yeah, I think people just sometimes, it's so much harder to, to 
recognize like state sanctioned violence as opposed to interpersonal violence. Like mm. it's so much easier to like, it's so much easier to like be able to understand the harm that is caused by robbery, by yeah. assault, by yeah. rape, by murder, right? Like you see that every day, but it's not like the state sanctioned violence that's happening, like the class wars and all that shit is so much harder to recognize and it doesn't take, you know? And the correlation between how state violence creates that interpersonal form of violence. But it takes, it takes an analysis, you know, it takes an analysis to do that. It takes a deeper understanding. It's so much easier to recognize that yeah. somebody steal from you. You feel like, yeah. that's, that's the that. issue. But yeah. it's like, no, why is that person stealing in the first place? Exactly. Like I saw a story about, I think, it, you know, it was a person who <laughs> robbed a pharmacy essentially to get, medication yeah. for their kid for their child i saw that too yes exactly but who is the real criminal the real criminal is the pharmacy or in, in this capital structure not the person who was literally just trying to save his child i mean that's, that's how like true. yeah and that's how the industrial the prison industrial complex is able to thrive because it centers the harm caused by people as opposed exactly. to the state like exactly. it's so much easier to blame the person right like not what were the conditions by the system that caused this to happen Absolutely. And I think, though, that I, I, I do want to say that um, um, there is a thing that I, I think a lot of folks talk to me about, about, you know, who don't understand PAC abolition. The way it's like, well, you know, um, you don't really want to talk about that interpersonal violence. I'm like, no, of course I do. That's, that's at the root why, of what you're talking about. That's right. <laughs> that's why I, I came to abolition in the first place like and so it's just like i think there's just a lack of understanding there that some parts of what you just brought up yeah so what led you to becoming like an abolitionist i know you've talked about various times in your life where you know you've had shifts of consciousness was there like yeah. a specific moment that led to it or yeah it was not a specific moment but <clears throat> it was a progression of moments i i started doing work um anti-violence work quote-unquote getting paid to do anti-violence work uh, when I was working um, at an organization in New York called Sanctuary for Families in the early 90s. Um, and uh, Sanctuary for Families is the largest private domestic violence organization in New York City. And um, I was doing work there and working with survivors and um, people who'd been victims of domestic violence. And pretty early on, it became clear to me that um, people were not asking for the things that were being offered, right? So it's like people came and they'd be like, well, what we can do for you is kind of give you an order of protection against your abuser. And people would be like, um, I don't think I want to do that, like for multiple kinds of reasons. And it was like, well, we don't really have that much else to offer you. Like, so we had like the criminal punishment system to offer people or counseling. Like there was just not a lot we were doing and people were kind of rejecting both sometimes or one or the other. Um, and I just started over time seeing the way that kind of carceral feminists, um, feminists who believe that you end violence by using state violence, um, that they were dominating the conversations that were in. And these were, these were overwhelmingly white feminists, but I have to say that a lot of people of color were also buying in and still buy into carceral feminism. So I was just like, oh, um, this is, I just, I'm, I need a different space to react, like to do work. And I'm not even, I'm not even helping the people I say I want to help through this. It's just not working out. And so around the uh, late 90s is when um, critical resistance 
uh, had its first gathering and I think it was in 97, 98, 98 in Santa Cruz. Um, and there was a beginning of a conversation there that was uh, kind of, in, I had already before then been engaged in doing some restorative justice training myself, getting myself trained in restorative justice in the mid nineties. Um, and anyway, so long story short is I had this conf a, a, a confluence of things, me kind of getting exiled from um, doing work in traditional mainstream and uh, domestic violence organizing work. Um, and then me learning about restorative justice and getting that language and starting to think about my whole idea of harm totally differently. And then CR coming into being. And then um, there was a statement that was put together in 2001 between Insight, Women and Trans People of Color Against Violence, and um, and critical resistance. And I got involved with Insight, Women and Trans People of Color Against Violence. And it was an attempt to bring abolitionists and people who were concerned about gender violence together to say like, we actually have a lot in common and we actually want similar kinds of things, but the prison abolitionists need to take gender violence seriously and the gender violence folks need to take prison abolition seriously. People can go and find that statement online and they should read it because I think it's still so relevant for this moment that we're in today and it's like 20 years old. But it's really, really helpful to framing that work, especially if you're somebody who is concerned with interpersonal violence. So anyway, so I that's how I like it was a it was a slow, gradual process of like gaining language and analysis and looking at the situation that I was in and feeling like it wasn't doing what it said it was doing or said it wanted to do. And I came to abolition that way. Um, and then had a, a framework and a political home um, that I could work through because my, I have shifted political homes over the years as well. Um, you know, kind of from the nation to doing stuff with like the Trotskyites and the old white socialist left. And, you know, like, so I've had many, many different incarnations, black nationalist stuff. Um, so, yeah, so I found my political home in, um, in PIC abolition um, in the late 90s, early 2000s. That's what's up. Yeah. Like just even thinking about, I don't know, for myself, like I was born in 93 and just to think about like this work has been going on, you know, for a while, but like abolition. Did you work. just say you were born in 93? <laughs> yeah, I did. <laughs> but like to hear that work was happening, you know, in the 90s, like that abolition work. Yeah. You know, I feel like I just learned about abolition in the past few years, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like, I think that's, that's really dope. Mm -hmm. Um. So yeah, just thinking about like abolition in this historical moment, like what do you think that looks like for abolition, like right now in, in the midst of yeah. Trump, in the midst of this election cycle? Yes, this is such a, it's a really good question you ask. Um, I'm going to just say that I think, I, I have to tell you, I'm stunned when I hear young folks say that they're PAC abolitionists because I mean, just a few years ago, you would get laughed out of almost every room if you ever said that publicly and when you said it publicly. Like, people just did not take it seriously. People were just like, it's not like most people still take it seriously, but it's so much more prevalent today than it was even 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, and so I, I'm just shocked all the time and shocked in a good way. I'm really open to people coming and joining, um, you know, being part of joining and building ideas and thoughts and all that other stuff. I'm really pro that. 
So on the one hand, I feel an incredible level of excitement that new people want to be part of thinking through abolition and then organizing from an abolitionist perspective. I do have worry um, that as more people join in and they haven't done much study, that they um, are calling certain things abolitionists that are clearly not. And that becomes a problem then um, of co-optation and of watering down and of not actually having the, the strength of our convictions. Um, and I think for me, it is really important if you're gonna say you're an abolitionist that you do political education to really understand what that means, that you, um, that you really are rooted, like it means no prisons, no policing, no surveillance. Like, I mean, you know, there, it, doesn't, it means a lot of other things, but at the base, like it means those things. And you kind of just have to agree with that to call yourself a PAC abolitionist. So I think there's, um, I think about that in this moment quite a bit because I'm, I'm just, I'm always looking and, and hearing and paying attention to how people, you know, talk about things. And I think yeah. it's really important to be rigorous in our thinking and rigorous in our study. Because so much shit these days has just become co-opted, you know, like decolonial is a buzzword, revolution oh. is a buzzword, activist is a buzzword, and it it doesn't lose its meaning if you know what that meaning is, but it's yeah. like it becomes watered down and then you, you know. Yep. Or people, yeah, people like to take parts of it to fit their agenda. And it's like, as soon as you remove yeah. one piece of it, it's no longer what you claim it to be. Like if you, That's what do you really say with the three rings? No surveillance, no prisons, no police. You can't say yeah, no. if you yep. still fuck with the police, but you want to remove the other two. Cause it's like, nigga, like no, no. it's all of it. It's yeah. all of it. Abolish all ICE, of it. but still have detention centers. Like what? I, Exactly. Which is why I always say like, don't say no police. That's not, it's bigger than that. It's no policing. You know, because law enforcement is in multiple ways plays itself out in our system. They got a bunch of different gangs. They got the sheriff. (laughs) You feel me? They got the state police. They got the CHP. It's ICE. It's the MTA. It's the housing police. It's the, like, the list is so long of what we mean by policing. And surveillance is a form of policing. So you have to, again, it's so important to have these concepts down and really understand them in the broadest sense. Um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of the, a lot of the times, as a counter argument, you'll you'll have folks say like, "Well, if prisons and the criminal justice system don't exist, like, what is our alternative?" Yeah. So I think this is a great opportunity for us to kind of talk about, you know, restorative justice, transformative justice. So if you could define those, um, and let folks know how they can be used as replacements for the criminal punishment system. Yeah. Great question. I don't know, how much time do we have? As left? much time as you need. Is that right? Okay. I, so I think one of the questions, I know you all get this too, if when you say that you're a PAC abolitionist, they ask the first question is what about rapists and murderers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so I wanna tie that to this question, the question that you asked, because I think they're coming from a place where people are very, worried about being safe mm-hmm. that you know like there it's not I don't think for most people it's coming from like this really kind of challenging um you know uh place I think people really so often when people ask me that question I will say 
are you asking me how you will keep yourself safe? And try to like really engage with their fear um, because I know that that's often where people are coming from is, is from that place of fear. So to say that is important to like kind of for me to put that out front. So I'm always like, are you asking, you know, are you asking how to ensure that you're going to be safe? Are you asking how to ensure, you know, can I ask you how you're currently keeping yourself safe? Right. What do you currently do to ensure your safety? And then I'm like, how does the PIC figure into that? Right? Like often it doesn't figure in at all. So let's talk about that. Let's talk about, you know, I'm always open to collectively thinking through ways to actually expand safety for all of us. That's what I've spent most of my adult life working on. And I just don't think the PIC meets our needs. So we need something else. Yeah. Right. And so the, so the, the something else becomes this thing where people want um, like, okay, so give me, the one thing, right, that is going to solve all of the problems. And what I say to people in that case is the prison industrial complex and prisons in particular, they're one thing. It's like for every harm, for everything that happens, that's your offering, the one thing. And part of the reason it doesn't work is because it's just one thing. And it's one thing, if everything that you see, if you have a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Well, that's actually part of what the problem is. So whatever we create that's different from this current system, that allows us to have different relationships with each other, that allows us to be able to build a different kind of safety, has to not just be one thing. It has to be a million things. Yeah, and ha- we have to have a million different experiments. We have to be doing all sorts of, because not all harms are the same. Mm-hmm. And not all harms call for the same kinds of responses. So I like to open that up for folks to give them a general sense of what we're trying to do. Because what I don't want to have happen is for people to take restorative justice and transformative justice and say that's the alternative to the prison industrial complex or the alternative to prison. What is, why? Why don't I want that? Because when, I, when you say the word alternative to the prisons, what, what is kept... Um, what is this, what is kept the same in that? What do you hear when you hear alternatives to prison? Prison's still going to be there. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Not only is prison going to be there, but our center, we're centering the prison, right? And what, what Angela Davis and others have done a really good job to help us understand is that where the prison exists in a nexus of multiple other kinds of systems we can't just be centering the prison, though we have to make sure the people in it are centered, because then our whole focus becomes on how are we going to do the exact same things we're currently doing that the prison is supposed to be addressing, instead of saying, let's open ourselves up to figuring out how we're going to address harm, period. That's all. Let's figure out how we can address various harms in the world. What's the system? What are the systems and ways to evaluate, adjudicate particular kinds of harms? And that doesn't have to be prison. We can decenter that right away. So that's why I don't like the term alternative to prison, because there is no one alternative to anything. There are multiple alternatives. Does that make sense? Yeah, for sure. I I think about how, um, like, if you start talking about taking away capitalism and folks, all right, so we're going to put in place, it's like, (laughs) 
It might not be just one thing. Exactly. It won't be just one thing. That's the whole point, right? Because capitalism is so hegemonic that it subsumes all other possibilities. We, if we want to get rid of capitalism, which I do, it isn't then to create one co-op. That's not going to fucking end capitalism. Do you know? Like, but a hundred million co-ops and 10 other million other things will have a fighting chance to be able to actually meet the needs of people so that these systems can, when they collapse, because they will, um, will actually allow for a different way of being. So I just wanted to start there by framing it in that way, because I do think that there's this kind of, people are constantly being put on the spot to come up with the solution. First of all, <laughs> there that. is no one That's number one. Number yeah. two, guess what, people? We didn't make this, first of all, in one day. This current system is generations in the making that solutions, quote unquote, for the solutionarians, is going to be generations in the making. The third thing is, why are you asking me? I'm one person. You're, I, I'm not going to give you an answer. You have to co-create the answers with me. We live together in a society. We all have responsibility to figure out what's next. It's, not, it's a collective thinking responsibility. Right. It's a collective making responsibility. I don't want to be out here being Miriam on the top of the universe. I'm the president of everybody and being like, <laughs> now this is how it's going to work. It doesn't work that way. And it shouldn't work that way because we're all different and we have different needs and we need our mets, Our needs are going to be met differently. So we need, so those are three important things to make sure you constantly remind people of. And it's like, it's not a failure when somebody says, what? Okay, you don't like what's happening right now. What else? You know, you, your answer can actually be not this. Like, I don't know what the, I don't know what the answer is. I just know that this, this is shit is not working. Right your here. answer can <laughs> actually be, and it's valid for your answer to be not this. Okay, so after having said all that... <laughs> I do want to talk about restorative and transformative justice because that happens to be a way I have found over the years to figure out how to intervene in particular harm, okay? And I focus particularly my work on sexual harm. I do that because I myself have been a survivor of rapes. I also do that um, because I believe like it is my responsibility as a human being on the planet to help support other people who are hurting, who need some healing, who feel like they want to be in a space where they want to try to address issues and there aren't options for them. They literally cannot use the criminal punishment system, do not want to use the criminal punishment system, but they deserve some form of accountability still. Right? Like, that's why I'm engaged in transformative justice work. That's the core of it for me. It's not because I have to come up with the solution to how the world's going to operate. It's because I feel like we're all interdependent and we owe it to each other to provide each other with support when we are harmed. That's the only reason for why I do work around restorative and transformative justice. And what those, both of those kind of ways of being are, they're more than, they're not just like, they're actual frameworks for how we intervene in, how we prevent, and how we respond to harm at its core that's what those two frameworks are asking us to think about in real ways but not just think about but to practice 
and to act on and to support people. So that's why I come out of this work of transformative and restorative justice, right? Not because I'm like trying to come up with the solution and the alternative to the prison industrial complex. I don't give a fuck about that. That's not the work. I'm interested in harm and I'm interested in relationships and I'm interested on how we actually use the relationships we have with each other to address harm. Yeah, and I, one of the biggest uh, takeaways that I get from like restorative justice, transformative justice, as opposed to um, the criminal punishment system is like, it actually does center the people. Yes. It's cent- and it centers the person who was harmed. Yeah, yes. right? and, and it also and does work towards want. rehabilitation. Like the goal that we want um, and, yes. and accountability, right? Because you think about, I mean, I had this conversation with a, with a, um, a friend of mine where some harm was caused to her and I responded by enacting violence onto the person that caused the harm. And she was like, you don't even know if that's what I wanted. Mm, that's I so like, deep. <laughs> she was like, you didn't like, I understand what you were yeah. trying to do, but that's not like, that's literally not even what I wanted. Like, so then again, centering her in the harm that was caused. Yes. And I Absolutely. think that's what I get from, from, from restorative justice and transformative justice. It centers, Absolutely. centers the person. It centers, it centers the people who were directly in, but it, you know what it also does? It calls in the community. Yeah. It calls in other people and says like, you know what, actually, it's not just about these two people. It's about all of us together. And you, your friends, they should be in on this too. You harm somebody, your friends should be in on this. You were harmed, your friends should be in on this too. We need everybody. And so that is also an important part of the work of a, a different framework for how we address harm is like, the people, their communities, the larger societal culture, all of it has an impact on what's happening. And asking the question, why did you do this? If you can't answer the why, it's let's think together. Let's gain some insight. Let's understand so that you can find a way to apologize, to make amends, to repair the harm you've caused. And again, repairing the harm you've caused doesn't mean the harm has now disappeared. It just means that you actually took a proactive step to actually figure out what might be needed by everybody. You didn't just harm the person, you harmed Mm -hmm. the community, you harmed other people. You can think those things through together. And then most importantly, how are you gonna change your behavior from here on in? Because we don't want you to do the same thing over and over and over again. And that's what true rehabilitation is. Yes, it should be. It should be. That's and like true justice. <laughs> it should be actual. To me, that's why, so again, why I believe in transformative justice as a framework is for all those reasons that I, you know, we just talked about and mentioned. And so I hope that, I really hope that people um, understand that like PAC abolition is deeply, deeply concerned with harms. And it's also this question of like, who's, I don't believe in just, um, throwing people away. I do believe in having boundaries. Yeah. I do believe in if people are willing to try to take responsibility, I think we should try to work with them. And, um, and I think we need systems to be able to create to do that. Yeah. And I know, you know, earlier we were talking about like how oftentimes like restorative justice and transformative justice are used as like alternatives, right, to prison. And I think one thing I've seen is now restorative justice is being used by mm-hmm. like parole departments and police yes. departments and shit like that. And in a lot of ways it's been co-opted. Yes. Can you speak a little bit to that? Wow. I feel really, so, I feel so many ways about um, 
restorative justice because as I mentioned to you before, um, I started, I got my first training in 96 um, and uh, it was like the restorative justice grandmas, I call them. They're the people who taught me how to think differently about harm. So I have, I feel so indebted to having found and discovered that way of thinking because it has kind of underpinned everything of my, my life since I learned about it um, and changed me as a person, like literally changed me as a person, learning how to live in a restorative way. So I have so much love and respect for the folks who kind of brought those ideas together. And I, I've seen how the system has glommed on to some of those ideas and transformed and changed them into what it wasn't supposed to be in the first place. And that's kind of not the fault of the people who came up with the ideas. The ideas still right. have merit and meaning. The system will always try to swoop in and, and kind of co-opt what you're trying to do, especially when they see it being effective and having and then, impact. And, people and then they call that change. They're like, oh, exactly. reform matters. Exactly. Like what? <laughs> exactly right. So I feel this kind of, I feel just sadness when I see that happening. And I know I have friends who are RJ practitioners who are working so hard every day to try to combat that co-optation, but it's really hard. The train's are kind of out of the gate now. Um, so I really keep telling people, for those of us who are transformative justice kind of advocates and organizers, I'm like, we have got that. I don't want transformative justice in schools. I don't want transformative justice in prisons. I don't want, like, that is not what we're trying to do. We have to keep it up as much as possible. Just keep it out of the systems. We have to just do it in our communities. And so we're fighting a battle right now to stop TJ from being, you could already see it happening. People are trying to use the language of TJ and funding and blah, 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 blah. We don't need that. We have to keep hold on to this and keep it outside of the state as much as we possibly can. Um, so yeah, and I think I, I'm sad about that on a regular basis um, because it's hard. It's, I don't know how you keep from the state taking over. It's so hard. Um, a question that I have, and I'm not sure if I could be reaching with this, but I, I've been thinking about, um, I've been thinking about this as there's a, there's a, a, a rapper in LA that's facing, his name is Draco and he was facing a murder, a murder case. He, mm -hmm. he beat it. He's found not guilty and now he's being retried for it. Um, mm -hmm. and I just been thinking about his case a lot. And I guess like my point is, um, how can privilege or if, if, it, if it does at all, how can privilege and respectability politics surface in abolition and restorative justice work? Because I think about how mm. with anything, right, there might be like the ideal person to do it oh. with. Uh, yeah, am I making sense? Yes, you are, absolutely. Okay. It's really, it's a very, uh, you know, smart question. Um, I think we have to be careful in general and be aware of our privilege all the time. Um, and not in this kind of guilty way, but just because it's the it's the right thing to be thinking about all the time is like how how are my particular biases, how are my particular unearned benefits playing out here? I think it's a good thing to keep yourself centered around that. Um, I would say that one of the ways it plays out is in who we decide to lift up and who we decide to fight for. So I've been saying for years. I mean, and this comes from the thing like. You, we have to, we can't just be like focusing on the non, non, nons, right? The non serious, non sexual offending, non violent 
crimes and say like and harms and be like this is the group of people that deserves to be freed right and Mm -hmm. you have to actually if you're going to end the pic we have to contend with violence we're going to have to contend with people who do sexual violence we have to contend with people who kill people like this there's no way around that we have to uplift everybody we have to talk about everybody. We can't just talk about, quote, people who deserve to be free versus the rest of them who deserve to die under the prison. Like, we have to take everybody. And I think one of the things that I've been, ta- you know, every time you talk about any sort of violence, the violence that people say we just can't, including people who cause harm, right? So they'll say like, oh, yeah, okay, sex offenders, if you raped a child, then you come into prison and we're going to kill you. Like they enact vigilante justice along those lines. That's the, the line of demarcation. Those folks, they're the worst of the worst and they deserve to just be killed, right? Mm-hmm. If we know this, it's the code of the street, quote unquote, blah, blah. Well, I'm like, well, if we're going to do that, then it can't just like, then, then what's to say that the next person says, well, you just murdered somebody. You also should be killed. Like we already have that. We ha- it's called the death penalty state-sanctioned violence done in our own of our names we you know so there is a moment when you start making demarcations that way where everybody then gets caught back up into the system and we can't get everybody free so i feel like that's how that plays itself out often Mm -hmm. um is the way that we talk about the hierarchies of harm and who gets to be able to be free versus who is going to be dying in prison or killed by the state And I just think I'm just against that. And part of my work around sexual harm is to really insist that even and especially people who commit sexual harm should also not be in, you know, uh, kind of criminalized in this kind of way that we have and the systems we have, but that we need accountability. And so what we're trying to do around transformative justice work when we focus on sexual harm is to make sure that people take accountability and are prepared and willing to engage with the consequences of their actions. Because I don't want a world where people also just don't have consequences for their actions. That's bullshit. I'm not down for that. You know, as somebody who was raped, I'm not interested in more and more and more rapes happening all the time with no consequences. That does not make any sense at all. So, so we just have to kind of have lots of thoughts at the same time. And we can't just be like exceptionalizing particular people and saying, this person is innocent. And so we're going to fight for them. Or this person didn't do the thing that they said, you know, so like, that's who we're going to fight for. The rest of them, we're just going to let them rot. That's not fair. Because then we have millions of people who are essentially casted away. Yes. Right. Forever. Right. And that's and just people, not acceptable. These people are going to come back into society. Right. So what is actually accountability and justice look like? Right. That's right. Because it's, prisons aren't addressing that harm. They are not. They are just harming. They are concentrated violence themselves. I want people to take that away. If they take anything away, it's that if you are an abolitionist, you are concerned about violence and harm. Therefore, that's why you're against prisons, policing and surveillance. To tap into this next part of the episode, tap in with our Patreon, patreon.com slash yellowblackpod.